is a podcast from Nordic Center in Shanghai, China. Located at Fudan University, Nordic Center facilitates collaboration within research and education between the five Nordic countries in China. And in this podcast, we showcase some of these activities. This episode is a recording of a public lecture held at Nordic Center on September 26, 2018. The speaker, Dag Hareide, is an author and organizational leader from Norway who is currently researching and writing a book on the effects that various technological changes, from artificial intelligence to biotechnology, may have on society, bodies, and minds. The lecture thus offers perspectives on a wide array of technological societal developments that are well underway, but that we've only just begun to grasp the consequences of as they unfold in societies across the globe. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to the lecture. <coughs> I'm Hongling Chen from the Social Work Department in uh, Social uh, Social Policy and Social Development Public Policy Faculty. So it's an outside of the world. Perhaps some of you have been to the Venture Building and take some lectures. Uh, it's very privileged to have our distinguished guest here to in introduce his recent research. So. Please let me to introduce Professor uh, uh, Dr. Dag Harida. And Dr. Harida is an organizational leader and also an author. So he was knighted in the First Order of St. Olaf by the King of Norway in 2015. This is the highest order for civilians in Norway. So all of the country, perhaps only 20 people could get this distinguished order. This is an extraordinary effort for Norwegian society and humankind as an innovator in a civil society. And uh, Dr. Dan Harider is very interested in uh, biotechnology and the information technology in nowadays. So currently, he's writing a book about how biotechnology and information technology will influence human nature and society. And this is the director towards the second Scandinavian public as well. His main interest in China is how artificial intelligence and genetic editing melt together. So after this, perhaps you, if you have some choice in this topic, you are very welcome to discuss this issue together with Dr. Hag Harida. So let's welcome Dr. Hag back to the presentation. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, um, yeah. I, uh, I'm looking forward to, to hear your reactions. I'm happy to be here. And I see there are people from different parts of the world too. So this is going to be interesting. And, um, and also, if I say something which is too technical or something, can you stop and say, what is that? OK? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you have tried to ask the question, what will change people uh, and the planet's life radically without us having an informed, uh, inclusive discussion in public? And for me, the last decade or so, the answer to that is the dramatic development within biotechnology, information technology, uh, robotics, neurotechnology, and nanotechnology. I, I have named this 
the brim technologies. And uh, just to quote historian Yuval Harari, maybe you can all know him from his book Patrons. The last century was about to create better machines. This century will be about making better brains, uh, such as artificial intelligence or cyborgs, biological humans, which is linked to digital networks and uh, systems, bodies, brains, and minds will be the 21st century most important products. At the end of the when you have glasses, you already are cyborg. Anyway, I, I hope it's not the end, but I will try to do it without. No, I, I think it will be fine. Yeah, okay. Uh, and the famous inventor, Ray Kurzweil, he summarized it in this way. By 2045, the difference between humans and machines will be insignificant. Is that possible? I'm not an expert in all these technologies. Uh, and when technicians explain these differences, I sometimes feel stupid. And, uh, and then I decided I want to use three years of my life to write a book about it. And this is, of course, a very desperate <laughs> ambition. But I think it's necessary that people like me, who are non-technologists, enter into this discussion. Because most of those people who invent or finance these green technologies, they think about the immediate things like better communication, better medicine, better weapons. Uh, but few have a kind of long-term perspective uh, on what this will lead to when it comes to human body, mind, and society. You have certain groups, see here, thank you. <laughs> um, you have certain groups uh, in uh, which are called, I don't know if your expression transhumanist, some of you, no. But uh, this is a small group of people who have made techno technological progress into an ideology. They will take control over the evolution and develop a radically changed version of human beings. Uh, they will create a new species, a kind of human 2.0, you know, uh, where technology has merged with the body and man, and we become a kind of machine man, a cyborg. And on the other hand, you have all kinds of humanists who are much more skeptical towards technological uh, development because they think it might threaten human dignity and nature. So first, a part of my job now has been to travel around in different continents and find leading technological uh, centers where we could find some of the, what I would call existential breakthroughs. Uh, and here I would mention some examples of these type of breakthroughs that uh, decisively might change human mind and body. We can start here with the uh, gene editing, and you might have heard about CRISPR. 
which is uh, you uh, try to make this cheaper, more precise, and fast. Uh, and it's only five years ago since that was done that it has exploded with research and trials. Just recently in Shanghai Tech University, they edited an embryo, because embryo is uh, earlier than sperm and egg comes together, and removed the gene that creates the Marfan syndrome, which is an incurable terrible disease. They were actually the first in the world to do this, besides uh, Oregon University in the US. And this means that we're not only changing one individual, one person, but every person that comes out of that. We change the germline. And what if we could enhance already healthy people? What if we could design our quality better? No. We can also transfer genes from one species to another. And we have done that, for example. We have been creating shining rabbits and transparent rats. And they have been able to make mouse more smart by taking human genes into them. And they, at the same time, become more uh, uh, frightening. Uh, what would happen if we apply that to humans? And then cloning. You know what cloning is? I mean, you, you yourself. Today we can clone sheep, dog, cat, and around 20 types of animals. So Korea is leading one. And in Shanghai Institute of Neuroscience, they uh, cloned uh, apes for the first time. And then we probably have opened the door to clone another mammal, human being. So would it be tempting to clone Usain Bolt, you know, the runner, and maybe uh, win some Olympic medals? Or to clone the child that I love? And then we have human stem cells. And a stem cell, which comes from the embryo, can in principle be any type of cell in an, an organ in your body. And if you can create that, you can, uh, you can uh, repair parts, for example, parts when you are blind or you have a Parkinson's disease. So that's the dream, that through these stem cells, we can repair those things. And in Japan, which is actually leading in stem cell research right now, they have been able to, from the skin of a mouse, they have been able to create eggs and sperm of the mouse. And they also have been able to create stem cells from the skin of human beings, which is, you know, much better than to take it from the embryos because that's more complicated and ethically also more tedious. So now you have the perspective that maybe we can take the skin from, from your skin and then we can create a sperm and an egg and unite it and you will have a child that only have your genes. And then you can become an ego parent. Yeah. Uh, then we have a neurotech. And last year in the US, a man who was paralyzed from the neck and down uh, could take a cut with his lame hand and move it through his hand like this only through his thoughts. 
because the thoughts were interpreted through a computer and then converted here to, to somehow, I don't know in what way, <laughs> it's a merciful profession. And he was very sympathetic that he was able to do that. And uh, just a month ago, uh, they uh, demonstrated that a, a pilot in an incubator was able to to guard three different airplanes with its thoughts on them. So this is called brain-computer interface. So then this uh, uh, this um, electromagnetic waves goes from the brain out. Then what happens if it comes back? I mean, will you be able to, for example, cure mental illnesses by this? Or may you be able to brainwash and control people directly into the brain? Then we have robotics. And we have type of comp uh, implants, for example, very helpful implants for people who have lost their hearing, so-called AR uh, thing. And they're also starting to get things for, for, the, for the sight of the people. Uh, but what about if healthy people could get night vision and extreme hearing, for example? Is that a goal? And today, people who miss their legs, you know, can get a, 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 a kind of yeah, carbon fiber thing instead. And uh, some argue that with this carbon fiber, you actually can run faster for 400 meters an hour. And there was one, one guy, Marcus Rehm, who has a carbon fire. He won long jump in the German championship. And he was not allowed to participate in the Olympics. But what if it became normal to replace your limbs to win uh, different sports games? Uh, because then you could run much longer than this. Yeah. And then we have nanotech. And this is maybe some of the things which is most difficult to understand, but it's kind of open, large rooms at the bottom, inside all kind of materials, including our bodies. And we can build very small molecules from the bottom and up somehow. And a nanometer, from a nanometer, and a nanometer is, uh, if you take my hair, one hair is, one hundred thousand nanometers. A nanometer is, is very small. And can these extremely small nanobots, as they call them, can they go into the blood, that's what we hope, and, and cure diseases? Or maybe they can go into the brain and create some kind of virtual reality. And, and the big scary thing is if the nanobit evokes, which we don't see, it's impossible to see, it suddenly starts to, to, to spread around and they self-replicate and cannot be stopped and start to eat and destroy biological life. This speculative kind of end-of-the-world scenario is called the Grey Go. Yeah. Then you have Infotech, which is maybe the part of it that we know best. And today we can communicate with a vacuum cleaner, with a car, with a refrigerator, with television, and an increasing amount of Internet of Things. 
No, it is a smartphone to do that. Tomorrow it's we are pos probably going to talk directly with some kind of digital assistant that will be organized our life in the Internet of Things. And I'm wondering what will happen if we are going to talk more, more with machines than with human beings. What will happen with our mindset? And if that function, you know, if that is going to be placed on your body or inside your body or coupled to your mind, there are plans to do that. I mean, what will happen then? That will probably make it more efficient, but what then? And then you have virtual reality, uh, which more and more is becoming like a, a reality, you know, you, with this uh, around your head, you can feel like you're into a kind of world. And maybe it's so good there that we're going to stay there. And I know that we already in China and other places have a lot of problems with digital addiction. But what will happen if we really get virtual reality? Maybe that's where we're going to have our, our uh, breaks and seasons. We don't need to, to go to know that we can go. And uh, even more important, I think, is what we call augmented reality. With an app that is, for example, developed in Moscow and in, uh, in Russia, you can identify by faces on the street and then can immediately get that information from internet about those. What if this is placed in, in your glasses or maybe even into your eye lenses or something like that? This might also give you information about shops, about private houses and cars as you walk around in the street. And we will live in a kind of fusion of digital reality and real reality, which we call augmented reality. And what if we, for example, could, uh, I know, reconstruct dead people from WeChat and have a daily design conversation with them. And then the ultimate. What if we could construct artificial intelligence, AI, that are much more intelligent than us and who can teach themselves, govern themselves, and maybe create machines better than themselves? This is the last invention that we need to do. So, what is the discussion that we need around this? And today in Norway and most of Europe, we only have kind of fragmented discussions, for example, about egg donation, robots in elder care, fake news and surveillance and internet and so on. But these brain technologies, they are converging, they are melting together. And I think few of us have the imagination to understand what happened when especially biotechnology and information technology melt together. They already do, we can, we can, we can uh, store data in DNA of a body. And as the brain's uh, electromagnetic signal can be translated into something in a computer. And this means, in a sense, it's not enough to have this, this uh, fragmented discussion. We need to see the total issue. 
And almost all the books I have read only treat either, actually only half or one of these type of technologies. But uh, also when I interview scientists, uh, it has surprised me how little one of them knows about the other sciences. And this, in a sense, has given me courage, because I know little about anything here, uh, that we who are non-technologists has a role here. Uh, and we cannot get a true public debate on this if dare we dare to take part in these discussions. Because this is going to change the economy. It's going to change the politics. It's going to change who has the power. It's going to change the daily life of all of us. And we need a critical mass of brave participants in a common discussion. The technologies, they can tell us what is possible. The economists can tell us what is profitable, but it's only the common sense of all people who can tell us what is right to do. Okay, I need some water. The it's important to explain uh, exponential growth. If one shall I understand uh, how this is developing, how fast it's developing. And there was an, uh, a Nobel Prize winner in economy called Fredrik uh, Blomo. He was asked if he get 15 minutes to talk with the people with most power in the world, what will you talk about? And he said, I will talk about exponential growth. Because it's very difficult to understand. I mean, linear growth is like one, two, three, four, you know. But exponential growth is doubling. One, two, then four, eight, 16, 32. You understand? It's, it's this line, it's this line. So if you then have 30 steps, one, two, three, four, 30, you go 30 meters. But if you do this exponentially, you will go around the globe 26 times. It's exploding, huh? like that. So this is the difficult thing to understand. And many of these green technologies has had, at least for some time, ex extremely fast exponential uh, growth with short doubling times. Since the 1960s, the, uh, uh, the information technology, digital technology, has doubled its speed, half the space it needs, and half the amount of money it costs every second year. That's the so-called Moore's law, for those who, who know it. And there is multiple time more capacity in this than everything that was needed to bring a person to the moon. 1969. And then they had, uh, you know, uh, computers that filled several rooms, and it cost billions of dollars. And this you can buy pretty easily. So that's development. And if you look, uh, and the similar is happening to gene sequencing, for example, and gene editing, brain scanning, number of patents in nanotechnology, and the human genome uh, project. Uh, spent 2.7 billion and 13 years to map the human genes. If you want to do it today, you can find a company in, in uh, Shanghai 
and you can see it in a few hours for thousand dollars. And this, in a sense, is not so surprising, this because clearly most of the sci scientists that has ever lived, they live today, and they're active. So technological pro uh, progress is, however, not a question of numbers, of measurement, of speed, or efficiency. It is much more the kind of existential breakthroughs that I've been trying to describe. And as always, it is humans that discover it, develop it, invest in it, sell it. So it's we who decide. Then I want to talk about the effects on society. You following me? Okay, yeah. You're not just uh, polite and no? Exactly, thank you. Um, and um, if you look at what has happened with society, I have I, I lived, I think, as long as the, since the revolution here or something. It was, I was born in 1949. Yeah. Uh, and when I look back at, at my time, it has been an enormous progress you know, in the world. The living age has increased 24 years. Yeah? And child, uh, the child mortality has gone down to a quarter. Just think what that has meant for people. Yeah? And uh, yeah, well, anything. I mean, the general income has more than quadrupled, and there has been an explosion in possibilities for travel, communication, education, etc. And technology has played a big part in this. Welcome. It's not too late to join the technological development. And I think the new green technologies uh, will probably give substantial growth you know, for health, and many products will be better and cheaper. And if you look at those who really dreams about this, you know, they say, we're going to create a kind of surplus society. Information is already uh, almost free, you could say, through internet. And then we could, can start to produce energy, which is an important thing, from renewable sources like solar panels, etc., almost for free, maybe, in the future. And we can make materials extremely cheap through nanotechnology, maybe. So some dream about a future where we may have 3D printers. You know what that is? You know, in three in printing three dimensions. But that can produce bicy bicycles, body parts, hoods, and tools almost for free, yeah. That's the dreams. And I also think that most of the uh, technological development will be positive. But when I look backward on uh, when I have lived, I see at least three areas where I see there has been increased problem. One is increased inequality. The second is destruction of nature. And the third is dangerous weapons. When we have exponential growth in technology, the possibilities of the evil and the good will also maybe exponentially. There is one quote 
which has been quoted most in all those techno books I have been reading, and it says, our time is the best of time and the worst of time. And my role in this lecture, just to make that clear, is to be what the Catholic Church will call the devil's advocate. You know, when they are going to have a saint, their heroes, they nominate a devil's advocate that are looking for the weaknesses and the evil side of a person. And I think when it comes to technology, there's so many people praising all kind of technological progress that I'm going to be the devil's advocate. Here I am. So first, inequality in power and money. If you look at global inequality, it has actually grown a lot since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Difficult to calculate, but somebody says that maybe in 18, around the 1800, the rich countries were maybe two to three times as rich as the poor countries. Today, they are 40 to 50 times as rich. There has been a period where this has been reduced, not at least because of the growth in China and some other countries, but at the same time there has been an increase in inequality inside the countries. And uh, I think this is that, uh, that uh, technology has a role in this. But what will the green technology mean for inequality? When I worked in Ethiopia in uh, the 1980s, less than 3% of the people in Africa had a land question. Today, much more than half have a mobile phone. And it's easy to see what that can mean for people, you know, the connections, getting to banks, etc. The whole code has uh, empowered the poor. So I, I do not dispute that technology helps and can give progress to the poor. But my, uh, my point is that the progress is much, much faster for the rich if I'm talking about the inequality of the relationship. And we know from research that even when the poor people get better living standard, the inequality in itself creates a several types of problems like more conflict, more crime, more psychological problems, less trust to each other, less trust to the government, etc. So what do we see today? One calculation tells that the eight richest people in the world has as much wealth as 3.6 billion who are the poorest half. Eight people has as, as much as 50% of the population. The world. Uh, five of those have got their money from the digital industry. And the world's five richest companies, when you come to market value, is Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, and Amazon. And in China, you have Tencent and Alibaba. And we really haven't seen such a dramatic uh, concentration of economic power, I think. Maybe certain times in history, but it's really dramatic, that uh, concentration of economic power. In Europe, we have 
been mostly concerned about how these green technologies are going to create unemployment, take work away from people, because automation have already removed most jobs in agriculture and industry. You know, it's not many people in uh, working in agriculture industry in, in, uh, in most modern countries, because most are into the service sector. And nowadays, automation and artificial intelligence, especially, have started series to replace work in the service sector. Medical diagnosis, stock trade, driving cars, sport reportage, legal analysis can be done by artificial intelligence. But I think this doesn't need to be a problem. I think it would be a benefit if uh, People could work less, especially here in China. I think we're <laughs> not doing very much. And to be free to take more care of your family and other people. Huh? But that needs a political solution. And I doubt that we will be better to share work than we have been in sharing wealth. And then if we don't do that, we might or might not, I, this is difficult to know, we might get a class of people that is not needed in the green economy. Another issue is how people of power have a radically increased possibility for sur surveillance and control. You know, the philosopher Jeremy Bentham, he tried to make prisons more efficient in the 19th century. And his idea was to create what he called a tomoscopy. It was a tower in the middle of the, uh, the prison where they could see every prisoner every time. And his idea was that the prisoners, just by knowing they were watched, were going to be disappeared. Now, for the first time in history, we can do this with a whole society. Because we have sensors, cameras, big data, and artificial intelligence, that in principle could make the whole society into such type of prison. And there are many wa watching towers. I mean, Facebook and Google, and I suspect maybe WeChat, know more about normal users' activity and interest than kids, uh, friend, and family. And boss. Mark Zuckerberg in Facebook, he has said that privacy is no longer the social norm. Well, he bought the four houses around his house in his privacy. And then you have other towers, watching towers like banks, courts, insurance company, and of course government. And here I think the Chinese experiment in social credit system are of interest to the rest of the world. All states, of course, need surveillance, for example, to those that have a criminal record. And banks need lists of the people that have not paid their bills and loans, etc. Schools have lists of grades and uh, pupils that have cheated. And trains will put marks on people that have made serious trouble for transport. There are, however, discussing this, three important inquiries. The first one, should these systems be kept apart or gathered into a kind of total system? 
should one to cheat on exam lose possibility to get a loan? That's a double punishment, isn't it? First you're punished in school, then in the bank. Should a person who has served his sentence for a crime not be allowed to take a train? And will all these ratings be gathered into a total, for example, the Sesame Credit in Alipay, where you have one number with three digits that tell you credit, or in a huge encompassing total registry by the government? That's the first inquiry. The second, should these ratings also get into your personal life? How many times you listen to your parents or your political or religious opinions? And the third question, this system will for sure be wrong many times and unjust as unavoidable. The individual needs some independent sources for power to defend against big companies and executive governments. Who will do that? Is it the media? Is it the court? Is non-governmental interest organization or maybe a separate data ombudsman? Um, one, another serious, but I hope long-term question about inequality, and that is, what happens when biotechnology will give us transformed human beings with superior body and intelligence? Only few will have money and access to this, and I will, I think, more or less naturally, create an overclass of supermen find through enhanced technological body mind. And what about the rest of us? Will we be defined as, as items that in best case could be repaired? I just let the question stand. Then, oh, is it moving? Yeah. I wonder, I got, I'm using time. Maybe I should skip technological or nature, uh, or should I take it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. You try. Yeah. Technology has helped one species, the human, uh, into well-being, clearly. But what has happened with the million other living species on Earth? We humans continue to colonize the living room of other living beings. I just he heard a comparison where they tried to simply weigh, uh, see the weight of mammals on this earth. Then humans constitute 21% of all mammals in amount of kilos. And our livestock and pets, our slaves, so to say, they are 67%. Uh, and only 2% are left for wild animals, mammals. And the Living plan, uh, Planet Index tells us that the last 40 years, we have reduced the number of wild vertebrate animals, mammals, birds, etc., by 50%. I think this is shocking, but many people do not seem to care. They only are concerned about environment if it hurts humans. Uh, yeah, I skipped most of this. Uh, our, you know, kind of 
colonizing the world has been possible only through technology. And still some people say that it's technology which is going to solve our environmental problems. I think, yes, we need to change technology, but that's not enough. And to think that technology will solve it, it's what I will call techno-romantic. And I would say those people need to become more humble. And humble is a word from Latin which means to be close to the earth. And I would suggest two lessons. One lesson on the earth's ecosystem services, another on planetary boundaries, if you're interested in it. But it's too much uh, to, to go into this, so I don't say more. I'd rather go on to new weapons. And in my lifetime, I have probably lived in the most peaceful uh, period in history. If you know, if you if you measure how many people are killed in wars or in murder, according to how many people live, it hasn't been exceptionally peaceful. And I hope that will continue. But uh, I don't know. And what I'm afraid of is new weapons. I mean, you know the atom bomb, but there are new weapons coming up through the green technologies. And I will mention three. One is cyber weapons. The other is synthetic biological weapons. And the third is called the so-called killer robots or artificial intelligence, which is not enough. First, cyber war. That can start undisclosed. And knock out digital system in seconds before anyone can react. And they got some small tasters. Hacker put out electricity system in Western Ukraine in December 2015. Estonian public service became paralyzed by Russian hackers. And United States and Israel tapped Iranian nuclear facility in Afghan's temporary illegal action. American banks and Saudi Arabian state-owned companies helped to Iranian retaliation. And even teenage hackers have caused derailing of plane in Poland and paralyzing airport communication system in the United States. Almost everything can be hacked in a completely digitized world, electricity, cars, pacemakers, phones, metros. And the most modern part of our modern society has gotten a new type of vulnerability. But no people have been killed in all this. Uh, these uh, events. Huh? Are the warnings just alarmist? I think obviously uh, cyber weapons can create material damage, but they will never win a war alone. Cyber weapon is a kind of one-time gun. You know, you use it and then they find a way of repairing it, they, uh, defending, and then you can't use it again. So in a sense, I'm less concerned about cyber weapons than the other two I mentioned in the beginning. But we don't know less about cyber weapons than about conventional weapons that nations have. And we know that man may have stockpiled what is called a zero days vulnerability, which is a very serious vulnerability in a system. They go in, discover it, but they don't do anything with it. They just uh, kind of uh, spare it 
for the new pipe sometime. So what will happen then? Then we have synthetic biological weapons. And there has been very little use of biological weapons until this back in history. Uh, and one of the reasons is why the government actually came together and uh, forbid it. And uh, if somebody uses it, they will be punished. But we might have another situation today. Many reactors, when they recite for the Spanish flu, which actually killed 50 million people, much more than in the First World War, was published in a reputable journal. And Dutch researchers showed that four mutations could alter the bird flu, so it could spread through the air also to humans. The bird flu had 60% death rate. So we have this new synthetic development where bioweapons may be developed in garage laboratories because they are like cyber weapons, easy to produce and difficult to control. It's actually different from, for example, nuclear weapons in this sense. But bioweapons is much more problematic to transport and store. And most importantly, they may hit your friend as well as your enemy. But maybe some people don't care about that. Or, even worse, what if gene editing can direct a virus or bacteria to a specific ethnic group or people with certain genetic characteristics? And there's very few people thinking about that today. It's much too little international uh, work on it. Then we come to robots, the so-called killer robots and artificial intelligence. Military get robotized. There are twice as many robots in the US military as soldiers. And in 2023, it is estimated that there will be 10 large robots per soldier. What happens if the rulers don't need soldiers anymore? I mean, maybe they don't care so much about it. Maybe it's more easy to go to war. But generally, robots are not very good at uh, orient themselves and move inside a house or in, in, in a rugged terrain. I would say that my three-year-old grandchildren are much better than almost any robot to move around like that. The change has come with artificial intelligence. Think, for example, about drones, which is the really new thing that's in the air. If you have 10,000 drones attacking a city, it's obvious that AI, artificial intelligence, not humans, will be much more efficient to decide when these drones should fire and hit people or other targets. AI is already placed on boats and on the border between uh, South and North Korea. The machines just immediately shoot if they see a certain target. And they do it in milliseconds. Humans need seconds, so we lose. This is so efficient that Pentagon in the US has classified artificial intelligence as weapons of mass destruction in light with nuclear weapons. And President Putin, he said it just like this, those who has the best a artificial intelligence will rule the world. 
Dozens of countries are developing technology of fully autonomous weapons. Some argue ethically they will save on subjects, they will be more precise, they are rational and not governed by need and fear and anxiety or revenge. But there is also a movement against killer robots and they believe the principle that the decision shall be done by human beings. And this protest against militarization of AI has mobilized many scientists. For example, 24,000 scientists out of these 8,000 working specifically with AI have signed a letter. They say that AI will be the third weapon revolution after the gunpowder and the atomic bomb. They want to avoid an arms race and they say when artificial intelligence is developed, it will allow for an armored conflict that will be fought on a scale greater than ever and at a speed faster than a human can grasp. I hope that we can avoid this arm race and contain attack autonomous weapons. I don't see that states should have interest in this. When we got the atom bomb, the scientists also mobilized immediately afterwards and so did millions of people on both sides of the Cold War. I think that was crucial, the important thing to stop nuclear testing, reduce the number of weapons and avoid accidents. So the last nuclear bomb was in Nagasaki and we haven't found one since then. What has become very interesting for me in this work is to see who are really behind the big Breakthroughs. For example, who is behind the breakthrough here? The GPS, the internet, the touch screen, uh, language translation, US military. Uh, and especially an organization called DARPA. I can write some names. It's an interesting organization, DARPA. I mean, they started with GPS in the 1950s and uh, internet in the 1960s. They called the Pentagon's brain. And they made this to have a decentralized defense and to kill people with precision. So I can use this one to find a restaurant in, uh, in Shanghai. So, so this is kind of interesting element. You have CFC, which uh, is a chemical that was put into the, uh, to the fridges in the 1920s. And then after 40, 50 years, we discovered it, it destroyed the ozone layer. And it had DDT, which we thought was going to help us uh, to against malaria. And then we discovered it is uh, killed birds. So there, <laughs> you never know the relation between intention and consequence in technological development. And military might become useful for the civil, and the civil might become useful for the military. New gene editing vaccines can easily develop into deadly bioweapons, for example. And self-driving cars have much of the same technology as killer, killer robots. And I understand that uh, military research and civil research has been more divided in China, but I also have heard that President Xi now wants them to converge, go together. We have a saying that uh, if you want to disclose a crime, follow the money. 
I think it's the same when it comes to technology. Could I add one? A little bit better. And now that one is prioritizing biotechnology. And listen to this. This is uh, the head of their biotechnology department. He's talking about his vision. Imagine soldiers that can communicate just through thoughts. Imagine soldiers that can withstand any harmful germ. Imagine that to learn will be as easy as to eat. Imagine that changing body parts will be as easy as buying in a fast food shop. This is daily visions in DACPA. I would say that if you have a dream of a Superman like transhumanists have, you should know that they are probably going to be soldiers in a major military power. First ones. <laughs> yeah. There is two movements in this. Machine takes over for human, and human become more like machine, uh, like a cyborg. I will talk about the last thing, the first thing, uh, especially artificial intelligence would need another lecture, and that will be at the end here. Um, the Nobel Prize winner in literature, Sigrid Unset, she says, the world changes widely as time goes by and human belief changes and human think differently about many things, but the heart of the man changes absolutely nothing on earth. And I actually can feel very close to the people I've lived with in the rainforest, which might be people think that are primitive. They're human beings that do this. And humanism is often based on a notion of human nature as something lasting and different from machines and animals. While transhumanism strives for radical changes in human nature. Elon Musk, the inventor of Tesla cars, is extremely afraid of super artificial intelligence that we shall take over the world. And his answer is that humans have to become like cyborgs. That we have to change ourselves. And transhumanism will change identities of human beings. One of the founders of modern transhumanism gave himself the name FF2030 because he was nostalgic for the future and did not want any identities tied to the past. He longed for a future without family, religion, and other traditions, without gender and differences and distinctions between man and machine. He has frozen himself uh, just after he died 55, and now in one of his cryonic institutes where you have these kind of bodies. And he wants to wake up in 2030 where he thinks very little in medicine so he can join us again. Yeah. Yuval Harari summarized the transhumanist dream in three points. Living internet, be constantly happy, be as gods with a living gene, I think. This is where it takes off for me. It's the core of my project because there are strong and very fruitful provocation about what does it matter to be a human being? Basically, what is man? What ingredients of our humanness shall we preserve for this kind of technological future? What about our body? <coughs> Can we accept that we age what happens if we really can change ourselves, not only with the plastic surgery and things, 
Do we want our children to become human machines? With the production of children no longer willing to sexual intercourse and childbirth? I met a man in California had written a book that said the end of sex. Shall we design our own children? And how will people live together with robots and artificial superintelligence? Should, they have, should robots have legal rights and responsibilities? Should they pay taxes and have the right to citizenship, that, like the one who got the citizenship in Saudi Arabia recently? And what about death? Don't humanists assume the role of religions and promise resurrection of the body, like with FM 2030 and cryonics? or reincarnation and nirvana. Like for example, the Google chief technology director, Ray Kurzweil, he thinks he can download his brain into a computer and into internet before 2028 when he turned 80 years old. And he says he will live on, creating in, into different types of body through holograms and nanotechnology. So that in a sense, they're entering the religious sphere here. And what do we mean when, for example, Professor Stuart Kim of Stanford thinks that the first person that will become 200 years is already born? That okay, that some rich people should live for that. At the base of this is a philosophical and existential contradiction. Is the point of life to have as much pleasure and as little suffering as possible? The so-called ut utilitarianism. Or are there also other values? This has, for example, in Europe raised the discussion. Certainly, utilitarianism means that uh, seriously handicapped children better be killed than to avoid the suffering of life. Aldous Huxley published Brave New World in 1932. Has any of you heard about it? How many have heard about it? Yeah, okay. It's a very old novel, but I think maybe it's the most influential science fiction ever written, but it's tend to be forgotten now. It describes a future world. All people are happy because they get a daily dose of the drug Soma. Okay? Children are manufactured in birth factories, is then to different castes, to different tasks. They are indoctrinated through learning while they sleep. They don't have to go to school in daytime and accept their position without protest. They all die happy after having fucked with most of the others and without worrying about dying. They live in a wonderful welfare society without war, suffering, or poverty. And they have managed to remove the family, marriage, childbirth, parents, pregnancy, religion, loneliness, quest for meaning, doubt, romantic love, thought about death, in short, anything that can give a touch of suffering. But are those things I mentioned part of being a human? For me, that took, started me to think about things like uh, freedom and human dignity. In the American Independence Declaration, they say, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, 
that they are endowed with their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There is no right to happiness here, but the right to pursue happiness. And life and liberty is above that. Which means in this value system that life that suffers has a dignity. And if you strive for freedom and then feel uh, suffering, it's worth it. We know that to be constant happy has been impossible. I don't know if any of you have, have been through that drive now. Uh, for Homo sapiens, it's been impossible. And it, uh, in a sense, it's uh, impossible because in the evolution, it would probably have vanished if you didn't worry, if you didn't care things. It would die out, you know. And death has been the fate and the common reference for all human beings. So there is a, a fundamental conflict there between this type of aspiration for pleasure that characterizes transhumanism and the emphasis on human dignity and freedom that characterizes humanism as expressed, for example, in the first, number one, in the human rights. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. I don't know if you know this, but there was a Chinese humanist, uh, actually a, a Confucianist, vice chair of the Draft Commission. He didn't think it was enough to be endowed with reason. He needed something else. And he introduced the Chinese word ren, is that right? Ren, yeah. Uh, which comes from Confucianism. And it was translated somewhat awkwardly, I think, to conscience in English. Uh, it cannot prove that human dignity and ren, you cannot prove it scientifically, but you can believe in it and build our society on it. And it's just as much something you have to believe in as, for example, the sentence that you should avoid suffering. That's another ideology. Uh, the contrast to pleasure ethics is uh, virtue ethics or duty ethics, relational ethics. All cultures have some type of virtue ethics. And we can challenge transhumanist dreams with virtues, for example, from my European tradition, with classical virtues like moderation, justice, wisdom, and courage, and Christian virtues like love, hope, and faith. China has strong, very similar uh, traditions, for example, of at least Confucianism. If I care for the poor in the world, I will take upon myself at least some displeasure to help others. Or if I want to keep my wife and my children into a family, I certainly have to do a lot of things I don't like. Huh? And if I hope for a better future, I will offer something of my comfort today, like the environmental movement asks us to, and if I appreciate moderation and humility, I would not try to become like God and rule over the world. And if I believe in justice, I would find that most of these green technologies prioritize the rich 
I will challenge that striving for my own perfection and rather look to what happens with the deep invulnerability. Basically, virtue ethic always includes some type of separation. That's in a sense part of it. And the fear of suffering, that's common to all humans. But the content of the vulnerable, I think, is the seed of fascism. Bishop and Nobel Peace winner Desmond Tutu from South Africa said about the years of the apartheid that it is astonishing what people can endure of suffering. But when they lose their meaning in life, they collapse. very important uh, when we get a situation with automation, as you say. And uh, some people talk about uh, what is polygular in English. Um, universal basic income. And if you can't solve your question in universal basic income, I think it's going to be bad. I mean, because uh, as I see it and uh, as I know from my experience in life, people need meaning in their work. They have to see that this means something for somebody. Yes. And, uh, and uh, so I don't have an answer to what you say, but, but I, th I think we should, one should think about that for, for all persons. And you can have that meaning, not necessarily in work, you can have it in your free time, of course, if you get some certain cash. But, but this is, you talk about uh, social uh, exclusion and inclusion, I think some of the same question actually you know, if you part of the community you have to feel that you can mean something to somebody else and, uh, and that's one of the most important political issues both in rich and, and, and poor countries for example for old people who are pensioners sit alone in their house in Oslo in Norway Of, of old ideologies like uh, communism and um, 
I, I obviously agree that I think we will get back uh, some type of racism which is uh, biologically, scientifically explained. And uh, before we got the human rights declaration, this was a very important ideology in Europe, <coughs> a kind of social Darwinism, you know. And uh, we have it. People, you know, want to get rid of all kind of vulnerable people, you know, preferably before they are born. Uh, and uh, maybe we, we switching, for example, we have disturbed bank things uh, in California, for example. So, so you, you kind of look for this type of, of, of superiority in, 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 so this, I think, is coming back. Uh, and and it's, it's partly what I was trying to go against there. You, I think it's very important part of being human that we should respect other people's vulnerability and vulnerability. Actually, all people will be vulnerable at some point in life. We have maybe forgotten the time when we were born. There is no other mammal that are so helpless as we are when we are born. I don't know if you've seen uh, uh, the, the Burger King pig many times. I, it, I think that's a picture comes up once or twice or six, seven, eight of them. And it takes one or two minutes on the, on the heat and load of fat it moves. I used one year before I could go to my mother country. So I am totally the most helpless and vulnerable of all mammals. And I think that's a principle for humanity. Just because we're so vulnerable, we get so much love that we can develop. And this is a very basic principle, which in, is in the opposite of survival of the strongest or the fittest or anything. Which anyway, the second thing is very interesting. About uh, can artificial intelligence make planning <coughs> so efficient that, in a sense, uh, it will revive central planning or the impact of communism? It's much more than central planning, so etc. Uh, what is interesting is to see how the human. Uh, biases continue into the algorithm. Uh, there is one book which is called the or the 
mass destruction, the uh, mass spin. Uh, yeah, it, it, I forgot the title, but it, it it tells all these stories, follows him, and for example, uh, Amazon deliver uh, their goods slower to black areas than white areas, and uh, and uh, women get lower often than men for jobs doing systems in in, uh, in uh, Google, for example, and. And what happens is that when artificial intelligence gets more and more complicated, we don't know what they are doing. We have this system of a black box, which is actually very serious. And uh, the only that really took this very serious in when I was uh, on my study trip in the United States was actually the military. Because they knew that if we were going to use artificial intelligence in, in, in a war, we had to know what is happening. You see the result, but you don't know how they have come there. It's a black box. So they try to find ways that you would actually understand what's happening. So what I fear is that we get a kind of superstition, belief in a machine, which always is starting with some algorithms. Even if you have machine learning, there are some humans that have given the task, that have given, you know, so if they do this self-learning process, so this is. But I believe that it can become a kind of ideology. And it's going to solve, you know, so in the environmental movement, they will want to kind of let uh, artificial intelligence take over the control of the world. So we don't destroy it because we are messing everything up. So leave it to AI. You know, we, we beginning to hear these kind of arguments. I think uh, that is a very good comment on the philosophy of develop big technology and the and, and the contradiction which uh, Franklin Lindbergh like to see it. Perhaps it's very uh, hot topic recently. Then we have hardly find any solution for that. For example, if you want to think ethical. say the modern way is much better than the traditional way. So uh, in my friend's opinion, he's a professor in computer science, he thinks that if an uh, um, artificial intelligence destroys the door, that the designer should produce computer. So in that case, he thinks the AI only is a kind of instrument. So then the all function that AI should answer is to assist the human beings activity. So I don't know whether that's true or not, or whether you agree or not, but just keep thinking about it. And I think time is up. Thank you for coming. And uh, obviously, that will come more comments if you have interesting time. I'm going to stay here. So. <laughs> and you're going to sleep here. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to stay here and sleep there, so that's OK. OK, so let's give another a round of applause to Jack. And thank you. For